Now, this week, Harland and Wolf is in the news for all the wrong reasons, as the iconic shipbuilding institution seems set to close its doors. Once employing thousands of men, the company now has a mere 130 employees on its books, and as things stand, it looks doomed. Remembered for the Titanic, there's much more to the story of one of Ireland's most iconic and controversial industrial giants whose huge cranes are an unmistakable feature of Belfast's skyline. So it's time for another edition of Hidden Histories, for which we're joined by Donald Fallon. Hello, Donald. Good, Good to, to see you. How are you? How are you? So there are a few sites as iconic as the Harland and Wolf cranes uh, on the whole island of Ireland. Yeah, I, I, I was up in Belfast for a year and I used to love seeing them when you come into the city. The Samson and Goliath, they're called. These great kind of yellow H&W bedecked uh, cranes and you know down here we love the pullback chimneys which are kind of charming in their own way but these are something else entirely I mean these cranes are the symbol if you will of Belfast's uh, industrial might and its industrial power once upon a time and a reminder that Belfast was for a long time Ireland's industrial capital but now this week we have this weird site where you have a protest banner draped over one of the cranes and it's a reminder that you know all isn't well in Harland and Wolf and hasn't been well for a long time so I suppose the question that you have to ask at the beginning of this is, how does a company go from employing 35,000 people to kind of tittering on the blink uh, of extinction? And there's been some kind of sympathetic words for the, for the workers from the British government. There's been calls for kind of renationalisation of the industry, which has received some sympathetic coverage. But I think many people feel that the days of an institution like Harlan and Wolf have, have probably passed. One thing that happened this week, which was, you know, a moment of great symbolic power, when Boris Johnson was visiting Belfast, he was confronted by Irish language activists who were looking for that kind of elusive Ochnagwell and Belfast shipyard workers from Harland and Wolf who were actually chanting Save Our Yard, Osquelga. And if you know the history of Harland and Wolf, a company that was deeply synonymous with kind of Belfast's Protestant, Unionist and British identifying working class, there was something kind of unexpected in that moment of cross-community warmth. It certainly wouldn't have happened 100 years ago. But looking back, Donald, how did Belfast make itself so powerful industrially? It had two things going for it. And if, 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 if you ever go into the, the grounds of Belfast City Hall, there's a great statue of Queen Victoria and on either side of her, there are two industries depicted, linen uh, and shipbuilding. And Belfast really had made its money in linen. The city was known as Linenopolis. So Manchester and the neighbouring island was Cottonopolis. Belfast was Linenopolis. And it had massive shipbuilding potential because of where it is. And the fortunes of Belfast have always been very much tied to Glasgow, you know, its nearest city. So this company, Harland and Wolf, is the brainchild of Edward James Harland and Gustav Wolf from Hamburg. And it's just born at the right time and in the right place. Belfast in the 1860s is booming. And to put it into numbers, the population of Belfast in 1801 was 20,000 people. By 1911, there were 400,000 people living in the city. So that is, by population, the largest city on the island of Ireland by the end of the 19th century. And Dublin, I mean, what was Dublin defined by? I would say Dublin was defined by an absence of industry, general labourers doing whatever work they could do when it was going. And there was Belfast. You know, Belfast, the point that was always made by unionists was, we don't want home rule, we don't want to be governed by what we perceive to be a lesser city in, in terms of industry and more besides. And the shipyard was often seen as a bastion of sectarianism, but just how Protestant yeah. only, only was Harlan's. It was bad. And if you take the Titanic uh, experience, the Titanic Museum, this is really glossed over. I mean, it's mentioned in passing once or twice, but the whole sectarian dimension of the story is important. I mean, Harland and Wolf was perceived to be a Protestant company for a Protestant people. And, and some have argued as many as 90% of the workforce at any time were Protestant working class. So, I mean, the way Harland and Wolf and the Titanic is remembered today in Belfast is interesting. Forget the museum. If you walk into working class 
Protestant Belfast, the murals in Unionist districts. One historian's gone as far as to say it seems like the Titanic is Protestant history. That's the perception of it. But there's little parts of the story that are more forgotten. William Perry was the chairman of the company once upon a time, was actually an enthusiastic supporter of Home Rule for Ireland. And he once spoke on the same platform as John Redmond and Winston Churchill uh, in the grounds of Belfast Celtic Football Club, which ended in a, in a, in a melee, of course. He was attacked that day by some of his own shipyard workers, kind of working class Belfast unionists who came along to disturb the meeting and attack their own boss. So it's mad to think you could be attacking your boss one day at a home rule rally and back shipbuilding in Harland and Wolf the next. But it was very much a deeply working class unionist industry. But at the same time as this political turmoil that you describe in Ireland, particularly around home rule, the shipyard was building its most famous ships. Yeah, and it's amazing how quickly they build them. I mean, there, there, there's three ships that come to mind when you think of Harland uh, and Wolf. There's the Olympic, the Britannic and the Titanic two of whom were lost but between 1909 and 1914 they're building these and at that time this is the world's largest shipbuilding yard but it's also a time you know where there's massive political tension and home rule uh, is on the cards again but I think for, for the unionist press the Titanic you know it was a symbol of unionism and Belfast one journalist from the Bell Tale went down to see them build it and said down the gangways pour streams of hurrying workmen streams that seem inexhaustible watching these human streams one gets an idea of what the construction of the Titanic means an enterprise sustained effort uh, and and money and some of the language that's used to describe the ship in the Belfast press is the Titanic is laughable I mean it's rooted in kind of tribalism one newspaper says that the ship and its sister ships quote represent the highest achievement in naval architecture and marine engineering. They stand for the preeminence of the Anglo-Saxon race on the ocean. Words which would come back to haunt, of course. But eventually, uh, given the, the, the nature of uh, what was happening around Belfast at the time, there were expulsions from the shipyards. And horrific stuff. I mean, when tension is building around Home Rule in 1912, you get this large-scale eviction of basically every Catholic worker uh, from the shipyards. 2,000 people in total are just evicted. And I mean, a Belfast shipbuilder's identity could be a really complex thing back then. You could describe yourself, and many of these men did describe themselves as socialists, but that would have meant, you know, gas and water socialists who were concerned with their own pocket rather than anything bigger than that. But they were still British Protestant and Unionists as far as they were concerned. And they were the working class and they were definitely not letting the Catholics in uh, on their patch. So you get these horrific attacks in 1912 where Catholics are you know, hurt in a way that is serious enough. Unionist politicians come out and have to appeal to Belfast Protestant ship workers to stop. You know, the, they say, Unionist workmen, bear yourselves as men worthy of the great cause into which your whole future and that of your community is involved. And it's not surprising when the War of Independence comes around that there's more anti-Catholic violence in Belfast. Thousands of refugees flood into the south from the north and on the shipyards, you know, dock workers, ship workers wearing crucifixes, identifying them as Catholic, are thrown into, wa- into the water or physically assaulted. And it's a two-way street. I mean, you get sectarian attacks the other way too. The IRA begin lobbying grenades at buses carrying Harland and Wolf workers to the shipyards during the War of Independence years. So there's a lot of tension in Harland and Wolf and the companies around it during the years of political turmoil. And after that, of course, the company was at the heart of the new Northern Ireland state. Absolutely. And the cranes, you know, the, the, the famous cranes, if you stand in Belfast long enough, you'll hear a dozen tour guides say, those cranes lifted the Titanic and they didn't. It's, a, it's an urban myth. Every city has its own urban myths. But those cranes, Samson and Goliath, came in in the 1960s. And at that point, the company was still a very powerful thing. And if you look at the Northern Irish state, 
you know, following partition. Harland and Wolf are very, very important. They built aircraft carriers, cruisers, naval ships during the Second World War. And even into the 50s and 60s, this is still, you know, the major employer uh, of the Protestant working class in Belfast. And as other industries collapse, I mean, the linen industry is all but gone. Even by the 1920s, the linen industry in Lisbon, Belfast and the like is on its knees. Shipbuilding seems to last a little bit longer. But uh, the art did manage to diversify and keep it, itself going. It, it did. So shipbuilding, as it declines eventually, it's the 70s, the 80s, you need you know, massive nationalisation drives in the UK. Companies like Harland & Wolf, you either go to the wall or you change what you do. And to their credit, Harland & Wolf did actually show remarkable ability to do that. I mean, they went in towards wind turbines and the restoration work on Dublin's Haypenny Bridge around the turn of the millennium. A lot of that was done by Harland & Wolf. So, I mean, they were able to diversify what they did. But it wasn't enough. I mean, the last ship from Harland and Wolf, Anvil Point, was completed in 2003. That is a long, long time ago. And they have absolutely zero contracts on their book at the moment. So the Norwegian firm who owned the company and Fred Olsen, the Norwegian owner, they've been unable to sell this thing. And you know, as far as they're concerned, it's, it, it's time to go. But Harland and Wolf might be on the way out, but it looks like its cranes will remain. And they're going to be an eerie reminder of, of many things, I suppose, Samson and Goliath. If because I think when you look at them, one, you'll see the glory days of Ulster industry, yes, but you'll also see you know, the difficulty of more recent times too. And it's often pointed out that Northern Ireland has a, a, a state economy, a, a, the, the public sector, that is almost as large as that of Cuba, which is extraordinary. You know, when your industries collapse, the state carries basically everyone. So these... These uh, cranes, yeah, they're a symbol of tourism as much as industrial might. Uh, and they remind us, you know, that Belfast was once a global powerhouse industrially, but, you know, that is very much in the past. OK, excellent stuff. My thanks to Donald Fallon, historian and author of the Come Here To Me blog and book, volume two now, now out.